I invite you to take your Bible and open to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7 is where we find ourselves for this Lord's Day, a word of explanation. Uh, We're grateful to have our pastor back here with us this morning. He had the privilege and opportunity to minister, as we mentioned Wednesday night, to like-minded ministries in the Texas, Oklahoma area. He had opportunity to serve and, and encourage them and then returned and spent some time this weekend at the Devoted Conference. It's a privilege and opportunity to step here into the pulpit as he has been away and even to give him opportunity for further preparation for this next Lord's Day which I know we'll look forward to being back in 1 Thessalonians. But for our purposes, we're here in Judges chapter 7 with a double privilege this morning of opening up God's Word with one eye on the text and with our other eye looking to the Lord's table where we get to remember and celebrate what our great Savior has accomplished for His people. Judges chapter 7, we come to a unique passage this morning maybe an unlikely passage, we wouldn't think to study it, but there's much here in God's Word. All Scripture, you remember, is breathed out by God and is profitable. And our prayer is that we would see and behold that this morning. Let's ask for God's help as we come to study His Word. Father in heaven, we bow before you, the great, eternal, living, triune God, Blessed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we humble ourselves beneath your majestic word, asking that you would be the ultimate teacher this morning, that you'd open our eyes to behold your glory, that you'd open our eyes to see our true state and condition, and that we would see all that you are in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us grace, we pray. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen. Judges chapter 7, a message this morning entitled, Weakness for 300. What do you think about weakness? Maybe more accurately asked, what do you think about your weakness? Is it something that troubles you? Is it something that you wish were different? You ask, what do you mean weakness? Physical weakness? Sure. And more. Physical weakness intellectual weakness, personal weakness, certainly spiritual weakness. Comprehensively speaking this morning, what do you think about weakness, your weakness? Even considering one can find themselves in a weak position, lacking help and lacking resources. One can recognize they are weak in relationships, Maybe one has the honesty to admit, I find myself a weak husband, a weak wife, a weak parent. Maybe we'd even be honest to say within the ministry of the church, we would admit we are weak church members or even weak pastors 
and elders. Maybe you sit here this morning and say, I don't think that I'm weak. I don't feel very weak. Friend, it's not whether you feel or think that you're weak. The reality this morning is you are, and so am I. Thus, what do you think about your weakness? Do you view your weakness as an obstacle or rather as an opportunity? That's the idea that we want to latch on to this morning. To help us, we consider first the wisdom from the late Christian theologian J.I. Packer, an individual who himself wrestled with his own weakness. Thinking of this topic, thinking of this question, Packer would state, weakness is not a cause for self-pity, but rather for Christ-dependence. Do you catch that? Often we look at our own weakness, we lament it, and it becomes the platform for our own self-pity. But Packer instructs us wisely, rather than viewing it as a cause for self-pity, a platform for self-pity, it's rather the cause, the platform, the opportunity for Christ-dependence. And indeed, he would know this weakness that he speaks of. If you're not familiar with J.I. Packer, he went to be with the Lord a few years ago, but as a young age, he began to wrestle with this issue of weakness, his own weakness. Living in England when he was seven years old, a bully, a schoolboy, chased him out into the street where Packer then was struck by a truck. Miraculously, he survived. But because of that accident, severe damage occurred to his head, necessitating the removal of a portion of his skull, leaving him with an obvious and permanent physical defect. You could think how this was further compounded, where for several years it was necessary for him to wear a protective aluminum plate over his injury, and you think as a young boy growing and looking out at peers, wanting to join in the fun with them, but because of this accident and because of this plate, he was prevented from all manner of normal boy activities. In fact, you could think this climaxed when he turned 11. He had dropped hints to his parents, hoping and hoping that he would receive, like his friends, a bicycle but his parents, wisely understanding any threat of another accident could be fatal, that when his 11th birthday came, instead of receiving a bicycle, he received a typewriter. At a young age, God already was working in Packer, showing him his weakness, impressing upon him his own frailty and limitations. God, though, miraculously would save Packer Use Packer, weakness and all, for his purposes and glory. Thus again, he wisely instructs us, weakness is not a cause for self-pity, but rather Christ-dependence. This morning, we seek to find help with our own weakness. When we speak again of weakness, we're simply speaking of our frailty, our limitations as a human something that in and of itself is not wrong. 
being finite and being fallen, though linked, they are two separate things. You think Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, they were made to be finite with built-in limitations. We thus this morning think upon our own limitations, frailty, and weakness. This morning we seek to receive help, maybe even adjust our perspective and find encouragement. Thinking of the famous words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When I am weak, then I am strong. Why? God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And again, as Packer would say, in fact, as he would entitle a book he wrote on this subject, weakness is the way. Indeed, it is the way in the Christian life. We learn this lesson quite curiously where we might least expect it. On the eve of battle between two armies. We come and descend this morning into Judges chapter 7, trying to quickly pick up and learn as we enter into the landscape what it is that's going on. Again, a very unique book found in the scriptures, a book in and of itself regularly showing great sin and at the same time showing God's great salvation. A book also chronologically in the Old Testament demonstrating chapter after chapter chapter that the nation of Israel needs a righteous human king. We come though into Judges chapter 7 as you begin to look at the chapter and even chapter 7 verse 1, we think of the line of Charles Dickens, it's quite appropriate. It was the best of times and it was... The worst of times. You look at chapter 7, verse 1, we're introduced to Jerubbaal, Gideon, all the people of Israel that were with him, and also the camp of Midian on the north side of them. As we said, it was the best of times, the best of times for these Midianites, a nomadic, tent-dwelling people, oppressive, ruling dominating God's people for a period now of seven years. You could think of them like the Tuscan Raiders, the sand people, a constant threat and menace for God's covenant people in the promised land. How time would come, they in the east would then ascend into the promised land, and like a swarm of locusts descending upon the promised land, they would eat up, They would pillage, they would command and conquer anything and everything that originally rightly belonged to God's covenant people. In fact, chapter 6 verse 5 will tell us they came into the land to devastate it. And for Israel, chapter 6 verse 6, they were brought very low. And thus, for them, it was the worst of times. Again, it is her fault. The pattern of judges will regularly show she, knowing God's word, she set apart to be God's holy, unique covenant people. 
Exodus 19 will tell us she is to be a a set-apart people looking differently, living differently to show the pagan people the one true God. She even was to be a kingdom of priests by her sacrificial system, revealing to all the world in the Old Testament times there is but one true God and He can be approached by means of a substitute sacrifice. And yet Israel repeatedly turns from the one true God, turns from His Word to go and serve and worship the false god Baal. Israel, you could say, was thoroughly Canaanized. Put differently, she was thoroughly worldly. And thus, she's punished, she's chastised, with Midian now being the instrument of punishment. You ask, how desperate is it? Again, the worst of times for Israel. Here's how desperate. Chapter 6 tells us God's holy covenant people are having to resort to hiding in caves and in the mountains for her sheer survival. What does she then do of being brought so low? She cries out to the one true God. And God graciously hears and raises up this judge. Chapter 7, verse 1 tells us his name is Gideon. He's been introduced a chapter earlier in chapter 6. You see there, he's really nothing to look at. As James would say of Elijah, so we can say of Gideon, he's a man of like nature. Fearful and hesitant. Reluctant and unsure. Ordinary. Or with a theme this morning, weak. Gideon is there. We see he's named Jeroboam. Again, that comes from chapter 6. He had opportunity to destroy Baal's altar. They then give him that name. But as chapter 7 begins, again, we come into this landscape, think it's as if the two prize fighters are in the two separate corners. The heavyweight, Midian, the featherweight, Gideon, and the nation of Israel. 32,000 men are there with Gideon from the tribes Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And it says that they are gathered at the spring of Herod, quite appropriate, the spring of trembling. Why would that be appropriate, the spring of trembling? Well, they themselves would be trembling because in the other corner, two to four miles away at the hill of Moreh, You have the Midianites. How many are there? Well, chapter 8 tells us 135,000. You catch that this morning? Gideon and 32,000 against Midian with 135,000. Well, it's at this point that we come now to the account and it will unfold before us in four scenes. The first scene, found in verses 2 through 8, giving a title to it, a label to it, is this, stripped for weakness. Stripped for weakness. 
Again, they find themselves on the eve of battle, at the spring of trembling, themselves trembling, and God will now communicate to Gideon words that, humanly speaking, we least expect. God says to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. Too many? Isn't it too little? I mean, can we do the math this morning? I'm not the best with it, but I think 135,000 is much greater than an army of 32,000. In fact, with the help of the Apple calculator, the ratio is 4 to 1. They're outnumbered. Pros versus Joes. The mighty Midianites, the weak Israelites. Did we hear you correctly, God? God again says to Gideon, oh yes, they are too many. Too many. You heard rightly. So insightful is God, knowing thoroughly the heart of man. God is going to systematically strip his people for weakness because if he doesn't, he says to Gideon, if I were to deliver you with this many people, Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Oh, to make it plain, to make it evident, the victory and salvation is not from Israel. God will see his servants Uh, see their real condition, see their own weakness. Again, this is the ingredient baked into this entire chapter, the thread woven throughout the narrative. God's plan, that they'd be stripped for weakness. The plan is twofold with two tests. First, we'll label it the waiver test. Verse 3, Therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, whoever is afraid and trembling... Let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. God is gracious. God says to Gideon, communicate to the soldiers, if anyone here is too scared, now's the opportunity. Uh, Here's the exit door that you can step through before you pass the point of no return. If you're fearful, if you're trembling, you can leave. And again, that makes sense. Who would want to be in battle with someone next to you afraid? Would you want to go into battle with the person next to you scared? You charging into battle while the guy next to you has suddenly got cold feet? Fear is contagious. It can quickly spread. In fact, this was built into the covenant law. Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 8 tells us. There was an exemption, a stipulation given that on the eve of battle, the officer could could communicate if anyone is too afraid, they can leave and they won't be looked down upon. Okay, who takes them up on this waiver test? What's its effect? Well, chapter 7 verse 3 tells us, 22,000 people returned. Nearly 70% of the forces leave. What's left? 
10,000. What's the ratio now? 13 and a half to one. Stripped for weakness. There's now a second test. First, the waiver test. Now you could label it the water test. God again says to Gideon, verse 4, the people are still too many. And I will test them for you there down at the water. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go God wants Gideon to bring the 10,000 down to the spring, there at the water to test, meaning sift, purify, and refine. Again, picture yourself, if you are Gideon, is this making sense? If you're the leader about to bring your soldiers into battle, are you wanting to lose some of your forces? It may not make sense, but note verse 5, the right response always when things don't make sense, to obey what God says. He brought the people down to the water, obedience and weakness. Now, we come to a part of this chapter that I'm sure many of us are familiar with. Again, even you've seen the lesson title this morning. Perhaps you remember a time in Sunday school you heard this lesson taught. Perhaps two comments are necessary. First, the grammar and wording of verses 5 through 7 are a bit tricky. Commentators wrestle with it. To simplify things in these verses, there's really two main ways the men decide to drink water. Most appear to drink by kneeling and bending down all the way, dropping to the ground and drinking water that way. And a minority, we'll see in a moment, 300, uh, appear to squat, kneel, and maybe use their hands, bringing the water to their mouths, where they then lap it up like a dog. The second comment, though, That is necessary, again, maybe correcting incorrect ways that this is often taught. Maybe you've heard this before. The 300 in the minority, them, you know, kneeling, bringing up the water with their heads up. Often it's said, here's the soldiers, alert, watchful, ready for the battle, vigilant and courageous, watching, And we simply ask, watching what? The Midianites are two to four miles away. Nothing in the text here indicates the virtue of drinking the water one way or the vice of drinking water the other way. It's not that the special forces are here being singled out. No, as the commentator Wilcox says, the object was to reduce Gideon's army to a force not of a particular kind, but of a particular number. The 300 are not meant to be elite, but a group so inadequate, or rather, so weak. 
Again, you remember verse 2? The people are too many. You remember verse 4? The people are too many. Thus, verse 7, as 300 drink the water one way, they are singled out. The rest are sent off. Doing the math now, 9,700 leave, leaving the remaining force with Gideon, 300. 99% reduction in forces. And in fact, the way it's worded in verse 8, Gideon retained 300. It's as if he had to take hold of them, uh, grab onto them to keep them. Maybe they too were wanting to leave, but Gideon is clinging to them that they don't leave. The ratio now is 450 to 1. You know what that's called? Stripped for weakness. And it's here that we step back and recognize this happens to be one of God's favorite methods of instruction. Maybe one of his signature moves. That then in the lives of his servants, he often so works, often is operating to quickly make his servants see when they've been sifted out of their own resources and sifted out of their own strength to see their own weakness. And we even ask, why would God strip in this way? Often that we would stop depending upon ourselves. Hear the wisdom recorded from a Christian of old, Robert Murray McShane, in his diary, March 20th, 1832. He wrote, leaning on a staff of my own devising, it betrayed me and broke under me. It was not your staff. Resolving to be a God, you showed me that I was but a man. But my own staff being broken, why may I not lay hold of yours? You catch what McShane said? Leaning on his own staff and God bringing that to light, God stripping him and exposing he was relying upon himself. Friend, are you this morning here leaning upon, relying upon your own staff? Drawing upon your own strength, resolve, and resources? Could it be this morning that you've taken Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, and you've reversed it? You find yourself here this morning trusting in yourself with all your heart and leaning upon your own understanding, leaning upon your own ability, your own talent, your own experience, your own credentials, your own resume. Has God broken that staff? Friend, lay hold this morning of God and all of His sufficiency. As we come to see our own weakness, even the way that God would strip us 
that we would see it, that we would say with the hymn writer, I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. That's the first scene, stripped for weakness. We pick up the pace. We come to the second scene, verses 9 through 15, now settled in weakness. Verse 9 tells us, that same night the Lord comes to speak to Gideon. Arise, go up down against the camp, for I've given it into your hands. Again, what a promise. God telling Gideon, it is settled, it is sure, Gideon On this battlefield, there's already a checkmate. Midian just doesn't know it yet. We think even the kindness and provision of God to help Gideon. Gideon, if you are too afraid to go down to the camp, take with you your servant Pura. And again, Gideon, of like nature, he's often afraid. Three times in chapter 6, it's singled out that he's fearful and trembling. Wouldn't you be if you were in his shoes? The mighty Midianites, 135,000, and God tells you, head down into their camp. Oh yeah, and if your knees are knocking, grab a buddy to go with you. He does. He obeys. Again, he's fearful of man, but he obeys. Why? The fear of God in him is greater. It swallows up and consumes the lesser fear of the fear of man. Again, his knees knocking, his heart racing. We understand why, verse 12 tells us. Do you see how the whole battle scene's painted? The Midianites, the Amalekites, the sons of the east, they're lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. Camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You know what the narrator is trying to do there? He's trying to make us feel how oppressive and overwhelming the swarm of Midian is with two tiny Israelites heading down now into their camp. And can you believe it? Verse 13 tells us when Gideon came along with Pura, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. Of all places, of all the tents, they arrive at this location at just the right moment to overhear a conversation. What's the conversation? One of the Midianites had a dream. We think, is this coincidental? Accidental? Friend, mark it, with a sovereign God, it is always providential. And yes, in the Old Testament economy, in unique times, in unique occasions, God would speak by dreams. We remember Hebrews chapter 1, now in our time, in these last days, God has spoken in His Son. But in the Old Testament time, and even with the pagans, they would place great significance on the dreams that they had, thinking in some eerie, mystical way, maybe the gods are communicating something. Ironically, that's what's happening here, and they realize it. And what's this dream? Look at verse 13. Behold, I had a dream. 
a loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. Can you picture that this morning? Picturing this mass of Midianites kind of all gathered together under this one big tent and there at the edge of the horizon a giant loaf of bread comes a tumbling down like a bowling ball perfect strike knocks over flattens this tent I mean it's silly that's what the narrator's bringing out. Some today would say, oh, it's not silly. We understand what's happening. It's the gluten in the bread. <laughs> That's what's going to kill them. Well, the interpretation's given in the next phrase, the next verse, quite clear what's happening. The barley bread... And again, the ancient time, the ancient world, barley is especially associated with those who are poor. And at this time, in this place, who is the poor? God's precious covenant people. They are the ones who are weak. They are under the Midianite oppression Who's the tent? Again, the Midianites as a whole. They are the tent dwellers, the nomadic Bedouins. But this Midianite, as he communicates the dream to his friend, and his friend gives the interpretation, they know exactly what's happening. God by means of Gideon. Again, they say this is nothing less, verse 14, than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. In fact, even one man. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. What's the interpretation? Sure victory. This being a strengthening reminder. Oh, as Spurgeon said, Omnipotence has its servants everywhere. God can work by any means. He can never be short of instruments. And again, Gideon, he's been slow to believe this. It's been hard to embrace and trust, but now finally it's as if he gets it. He grasps God's promise. And what's his response? Verse 15 tells us the only right and proper response. There in that place, he drops to the ground. He bows in worship. Mark it, the only time this verb is used in Judges where it's worship of the one true God. That in and of itself is a sad lesson. But Gideon here bowing to worship, worshiping even in his weakness. What's happened to him? He's settled in his weakness. Are you? 
Are you this morning, maybe even by means of this account, beginning to be settled in your own weakness? Are you starting to see how God often works in his servants? How when he brings us and strips us in our weakness, rather than that being an obstacle, it rather becomes the opportunity. Opportunity for what? For God to give grace, for God to show his power, for God to work and display his glory that others would see and behold by means of the weak instrument how great God is. And yes, for some, this process of stripping and settling in weakness, it is humbling, it is convicting, yet God means to help us by this as He would reveal to us that we would look in the mirror and see our own dependency. And as Luther said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, Until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. Maybe by means of this passage this morning, the word to you is you need to stop trying to keep up with God playing the role that he plays. Thinking that you in and of yourself whether others tell you or you think it of yourself, that I'm to be all things at all times in all places to all people. Deluding ourselves into thinking we are to be omnicompetent. There's only one who's omnicompetent. God. Friend, do you see Gideon this morning? He is a simple, weak Servant, offering obedience in his weakness, offering worship in his weakness, and so ought we. Spurgeon again said, we are certainly stronger when we feel our weakness than when we glory in our strength. Stripped for weakness, settled in weakness. Third, strategy of weakness. The end of verse 15, verse 16 through 18. Again, you look at him, you look at this Gideon. He's fearful and yet now is starting to become fearless. He is, as Paul would say, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Ephesians 6. He looks to the piddly 300, calls out to them, relaying God's promise. God has given the camp into our hands. So what does he do? What's the strategy? Well, he takes the 300 and he separates them into three companies of 100 each. You see what it is he puts in their hands? Trumpets, empty pitchers and torches that were to be kept inside the pitcher. He says in verse 17, when you get into position, look over at me, do as I do. What's the strategy, verse 18? When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, you blow the trumpet all around the camp and say for the Lord and for Gideon. Wow, what a strategy. 
Did you notice, though, what's missing? No mention, something that you probably need if you're heading into battle. A weapon. They have a trumpet, they have a pitcher, they have a torch. They've gone to the band room, they've stopped in pottery class, they make a quick stop in the art class, picking up a candle, but no weapon, exactly. That's the strategy. They don't need a weapon. Again, even if they had a weapon, it's 300 feeble, weak Israelites, 300 up against 135,000. And yet, look at them. They stripped, they settled, now the strategy, they're ready to stand for the one true God, ready to obey, ready to trust Him with whatever the outcome might be. And as Dale Ralph Davis said, Christ takes uncertain and fearful folk, strengthens their hands in the oddest ways, and makes them able to stand for him in school or home or work or here on the battlefield. We come then forth stripped for weakness, settled in weakness, strategy of weakness, Fourth and finally, verses 19 through 25, strengthened and even saved in weakness. Verse 19 tells us they get into position. Gideon with his 100 here, there's 100 over there, there's another 100 over there. At the beginning of the middle watch, the middle watch in the Old Testament, the watches, the night was divided into three watches. Sunset to 10 p.m., 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., 2 a.m. to sunrise. Second watch sometime between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. They heading around the Midianite camp, getting into position. They look to Gideon. What does Gideon do? He blows the trumpet. He breaks the pitcher. He holds up the torch. He shouts a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. The other 300 join in with him. They blow the trumpet, the shofar. They smash the pitcher. They hold up the torch. They shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And what happens? Why now the real warrior fights? God enters into the camp and he stirs up the Midianites from their deep sleep. They waking up, hearing the shouting, hearing the trumpets, rushing out of their tents, looking up at the horizon, seeing these torches. Why they descend into despair and madness. Verse 21 tells us the effect. All the army ran, crying out as they fled. Verse 22, the cause. The Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the edge of Abel Mahola by Tabath. God 
works where the Midianites begin to fight against one another in their despair and confusion. They then pick up and flee. Gideon even initially as they're fighting and as they flee, it's as if he said to his men, uh, don't just do something, stand there. Why? To show God is the one who strengthens and God is the one who saves even in the midst of their own weakness. As they again look out and see Bedlam before them. They run, they cry out, they flee. Acting out Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flee when no one's pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. As enough of them leave, finally then Gideon will go and tell from the other tribes, maybe even the soldiers that were dismissed, come now, join us, grab your weapon. He'll even appeal to the Ephraimites, come with us, go against Midian. In fact, uh, cut them off before they can cross the Jordan back to the east in their land. They're successful So successful, verses 24 and 25 tell us they capture two of their leaders, Oreb and Zeib. They kill them. They bring their heads to Gideon. And even this very moment will forever be memorialized with God's people. Asaph in Psalm 83 will pray, God, make our enemies like Oreb and Zeib. Psalm 83, verse 11. You come to the end of the account, and what is happening? Well, as the psalmist tells us, some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Oh, weakness for 300. Seen in a most extraordinary way. What God often does in ordinary ways in our own lives. Far from being an obstacle, consider a new perspective on weakness this morning. God intends it to be an opportunity. As you're stripped of depending upon yourself and you begin to look to Him to then find His grace and see His power at work in our weakness. Again, as J.I. Packer will further say, writing on this theme, God will make us increasingly weakness conscious and pain aware so that we may learn that when we are conscious of being weak, then and only then may we become strong in the Lord. And so he ends, and should we want it any other way? Dear Christian, consider your weakness and consider your God. Or as Christians from the past would say, man's extremity is God's opportunity. And we come now to see that in its greatest manifestation at the Lord's table.